Welcome to another episode of your Wild and Exposed podcast. Before we begin today's show, we have an exciting announcement from our sponsor, Precision Camera in Austin, Texas, the largest camera store between New York and L.A. Precision Camera is offering Wild and Exposed listeners a free 16 by 24 fine art print of one of your images with free shipping as well within the United States. To get this, go to our website at wildandexposed.com. On our homepage, go to the menu at the top right and go to our sponsors page. There, you'll find a quick link to Precision Camera. And once you're on their page, go to the option for a virtual consultation with one of their friendly and knowledgeable staff that'll be more than happy to discuss and answer any questions that you might have for gear that you're interested in. At the conclusion of your visit, they'll give you a coupon code that will give you access to order this free 16 by 24 fine art print of one of your images. By supporting Precision Camera, you're also supporting your favorite podcast, Wild and Exposed. Now, on with today's show. Welcome to Wild and Exposed. Your number one adventure, nature, and outdoor photography podcast. Wild and Exposed is hosted by Mike Morrow, Ron Hayes, Jason Loftus, and Mark Raycroft. Thanks for tuning in. Welcome to another episode of Wild and Exposed podcast. It's myself and Jason Loftus, and we're joined by Bjorn Dila, coming to us from southeast Alaska. Welcome. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah. 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 Now, you're from southeast Alaska, but just explain for everybody exactly where you're at. Yeah, so I live in northern southeast Alaska. Technically, I uh, live on Douglas Island, but we're just across the way from Juneau, which is the state capital. And you know, anyone who says they're from Douglas Island is pretty pretentious because you're, you're just from Juneau, basically. But if you talk to most people from Douglas, they're, they're very much from Douglas, not Juneau. So. so are you pretentious or are you from Douglas? Oh, I'm, I'm totally pretentious. So. <laughs> <laughs> nice. All right. So right out of the gate, one thing that we like to do is just have everybody tell us their favorite story, favorite outdoor experience. So it's it's a very wide scope. Doesn't have to be photographic, cinemagraphic. Just any outdoor experience you have that's kind of locked in your mind. I mean, just real quick that comes to mind. One of my favorites was uh, just kind of a ten day stretch when I was doing a trek across the Brooks Range just by myself, and I had I don't know around maybe three thousand caribou moving along with me every day as I was hiking along and you know that was the the highlight but you know of course you had all the other animals that were feeding on the the caribou you know the grizzlies and wolves and whatnot too but it was just so cool to you know no matter what time of day because you know in August it's always light up there anyways you're always just seeing caribou around you and, and moving that way but I mean it's just countless you know southeast Alaska you're walking up a salmon stream during during August it's just incredible, you know, just to have all these thousands of salmon spawning and brown bears and eagles and everything. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's just countless favorite favorite encounters, I guess I would I would say. It's a magical place up there for sure. But you yeah. you kind of said that fairly nonchalant. So if you're listening to us on the internet, just look up the Brooks Range in Alaska on your phone, and and then listen back to how nonchalant Bjorn suggested, oh, I just I was just out taking a walk across the Brooks Range and for ten days. <laughs> Is that like the Alaskan version of a walkabout? Well that was actually a six week long trip. Oh six so weeks. For, for ten days I had caribou with me. Oh uh, gotcha. Just about between you know probably anywhere from three to Around 3,000 was my estimate every day. And then you had other days where you had some caribou and some days no caribou. But that 10-day period was, you know, solid. Just you felt I was in the middle of of a migration. And that was what was so cool. You know, caribou everywhere, dead caribou everywhere, you know, just from getting picked off mm -hmm. by grizzlies and wolves. And 
it was just incredible. Just this incredible pulse of life in this area that otherwise can just feel, you know, at certain times just feel so desolate. You know, I've another trip to the Brooks Range. I think I went five days without seeing a single bird, even any animal. Really? You know, birds and then five days and then, you know, I had a wolverine almost run into me. Um, so, yeah, having that pulse of, of caribou was just incredible. So was that what a time solo? of year? Sorry, go ahead, Jason. I was just going to say, was that a solo trip? And I was going to say, what time of year? Yeah. Uh, yeah, both those trips were solo trips. Um, one was August and September, and then the other one was um, March and April. So That's amazing. What, what an opportunity. <laughs> oh, yeah, man. It's, Brooks Range is incredible. I mean, a lot of were places you, are incredible, but. Were you packing a camera with you? Dumb uh, question. <laughs> you know, so I actually, I actually did have a camera on the second trip. The first trip, I had a very cheap little camera. You know, no zoom, anything, and you know, it was dead within whatever a week or so. And I got some close-up pictures of, you know, grizzly butts and <laughs> had a wolverine at like ten feet, and oh, you wow. know thought the focus wasn't working so it just kind of ran away but you know i didn't get any great shots but you know that was probably my biggest regret um of that trip was i should have just brought a camera and i i had some friends two years ago who did a trek across anwar the arctic national wildlife refuge and uh you know i was telling them you know beforehand they're asking me some advice and and whatnot and i was just like well you know i can tell you all these things but what I really, what you really need to do is, is get a nice camera and bring it along. And, you know, these people have real jobs, you mm-hmm. know, and it's just like, you know, you're grownups, buy a camera, you're, you'll regret <laughs> not, you know, and then they're just like, they're kind of like, shut up, Bjorn, stop harassing us. And then they did the trip and, uh, and that was like one of the first things they said to me is like, we should have bought a camera and, uh, you know, they they think they saw a pizzly bear and I was like, I don't think you saw a pizzly bear, but if you would have had that camera, we'd all, you know, yeah, we we'd know blonde spot of a bear. That's, you know, you can't with their phone, their, they brought their iPhones. Oh. Like, <laughs> yeah. That's what everybody thinks, right? If you got an iPhone, you're, you're a photographer. So <laughs> you're, you're, you're a photographer for Instagram, maybe. But yeah. Yeah. They, but, <laughs> Yeah. So, so real quick, you you mentioned pizzly bear. Can you explain for all of us what what is a pizzly bear? Well, a pizzly bear is you know it's a hybrid of a polar bear and a grizzly bear, and uh, they you know I think they've they've had a couple that have been shot or you know verified on Banks and Victoria Islands up in the high Canadian Arctic, mm-hmm. um, and then you know it's just like our, our pack ice you know with global warming our pack ice is melting away, and you know you have you have, you know, polar bears getting shot in Arctic Village, which is what, like 130 miles as the crow flies from the Arctic Ocean, you know, on the yeah. other side of the Brooks Range. Um, and you have all these starving polar bears on these barrier islands almost every year now out, out on Anwar. And so you have grizzly bears that are out there, too. And, you know, honestly, you guys probably have had the same experience that, you know, a Randy Brown bear will will try to think about humping you, you know, a human being, let alone, you know, a white bear. That's a score, you know, that's kind of like <laughs> Scarlett Johansson wandering around there, you know. So, so you know, I, I don't know what the biologists say, but my theory is, and it's something that interests me, is that we're just going to be seeing more and more of these hybrids with sure. climate change. So. Well, they're, they're just adapting, right? The polar, polar bears are just moving and adapting to where they can actually, you know, feed and survive, so... Yeah, that's that's interesting. Yeah, they should have bought a camera. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I can't. I can't imagine taking a trip, even contemplating taking a trip like that, and not. Yeah, and of well, course it know, means extra weight because you gotta you gotta find a way to pack all the solar. You gotta. Yeah. No, I ran out of food for about five days on the longer solo trip, and that was you know that was the thing. It was just like you can't mess around. Yeah. And so, and in, in now, you know, I would do things differently and I would bring a camera, but it was, you know, you kind of get into this uh, very type A mindset on these trips where it's like it's survival yeah. before everything else. Well, it's got to be so, first. 
Yeah. And then, you know, and then it's just like, you know, to find a good camera set up for that trip is, is not easy too. Cause most folks, you know, who are professionals or serious photographers, they're, they're, your camera systems are just too heavy for, mm-hmm. for yeah. real wilderness tracks. So. Yeah. Were you doing it all off your back or did you have uh, some other way to help haul some stuff along? Were you on uh, horses or? On the, on the cold trip, um, I had sled, a sled that I hauled sled. me. And then on the August, September trip, I actually fibbed a bit. Um, at the, I had friends fly in uh, at the headwaters of the Noatak River. And then I floated out with two friends who brought in a resupply of food. Oh, uh, awesome. On that one, so. Yeah, it's funny. You're just kind of like it's no big deal. Just kind of nonchalantly. Yeah, you know, I just did these two crazy long <laughs> wilderness treks, and <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's not really though. In my opinion, when you think of like the history of people, you know, people sure. were always doing these. Like the mm-hmm. native folks up there until like white people got up there were like their annual life cycle was you know travel a hundred miles down river and seal you know at a certain time of year, then go over the mountains another hundred miles ago hunt doll sheep and caribou then haul all that meat you know another 150 miles we've just kind of gotten soft yeah you know, for sure for sure yeah it's funny when you put it in perspective like that it kind of does make you feel like a bit of a wuss but... <laughs> yeah i mean i feel like a bit of a wuss all the time so <laughs> so Bjorn, what how did you get involved on the photography end or did you um, it's mostly so, just cinematography yeah what what my deal is i mean i i i do like doing photography but i'm very much an amateur and i'll bring a camera along i got uh into i mean i don't know maybe 12 years ago i got into guiding brown bear, brown bear viewing slash photography trips in southeast alaska mm-hmm. and like when i got offered that job it was just like they were like this guy knows this guy spent a lot of time with bears and like, Hey, you want to take people out to look at bears? And for me, like that was, that seemed like the craziest thing in the world that people are going to pay money to go, you know, hang out with bears. And now it's just this huge thriving industry and it, you know, so that, that was kind of, that was, that was interesting. And then through the years, just doing that, I started um, working with film crews a little bit. And then these last few years have just been, and this year ahead, it's just kind of been um, made the transition basically from guiding photography, viewing trips to just guiding uh, film crews that, you know, mm-hmm. mostly it's brown bear stuff, but also, you know, other animal, other mammals mostly too. I'd love to do migratory birds and stuff like that, but, you know, everyone wants everyone wants the brown everybody bear. wants the bears yeah yeah or the moose but that's definitely so, what draws people up there yeah i mean when you guiding you know people coming to alaska on these bear viewing trips it was always you know it was interesting it was always like oh, i want to see a brown bear and I want, and then like number two was a moose which you know i guess that's a that's a realistic uh uh goal to have versus be like i want to see a wolf you know which is they're not easy to see at all but you know it was interesting moose was number two i'd say for most people mm-hmm. who are to alaska so hmm. um we're, we're, so born and raised in alaska yep, raised. yeah 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 um how long have you been guiding bears or were you guiding bears uh you know i think 2011 was, was when i started doing those trips hmm. I went from commercial fishing to uh, deckhanding on different commercial fishing boats to doing that stuff, which is way easier work and yeah, less bet. stress. And, yeah. yeah. Mm. <laughs> I grew up on about a 60,000-acre cattle ranch, and that's a romantic idea for a lot of people, but I would have rather grown up like you did and be able to, to be in Alaska and, and just out in that wilderness all the time and just you know be able to have those experiences now it's just i'm one of those guys that went to alaska to see brown bears but as everybody says it's been up there and i've said this many times on the podcast once you get back you just alaska's like crack you just plan your next trip and can't wait to get back 
And there's so much here, and you know, it's it's weird, and I feel kind of strange saying this, but it's like, you know, part of me is like just kind of waits for when the same season when people from down south want to come up too. Yeah. You know, this is kind of like I don't like I feel like I'm not that productive right now. Like you know, raising family, doing all that stuff, but like my real deal is you know from April through September. Mm-hmm. when everyone else comes up to see bears and wolves too so it's like if you're living down south and you get to come to alaska in the summer you know i'm not you're not i'm not going to say you're missing much if you're spending the winter in southeast alaska isn't exactly romantic you know as far as darkness sure. and weather and all that stuff so yeah. an ability to get out so i just want to clarify something for our younger listeners i do not have a history of using crack it was just the first thing that came to mind. <laughs> well, why why just the younger listeners, you know? Well, for, well, yeah, I don't I don't care about the older folks. I just don't want to be a bad influence. <laughs> so, Baron, one of the one of the things that Michael talked about when he got back is he said you had a you had a book project that you were doing and I can't imagine you know all the stories you must have and to be able to communicate those, um, how that must have taken place. How long have you been working on this book project? Well, first of all, what's it called? Yeah, the book is called A Shape in the Dark, in the Dark, uh, Living and Dying with Brown Bears. Um, yeah, I mean, the project, this is my third book. And, you know, this project took, honestly, I think I started writing this not really, but like taking notes and interviewing people in 2012. Like I started it that long ago. Mm-hmm. Um, mostly it was just because, you know, you know, actually, you know, from being a little kid here, you're just fascinated with by brown bears, just like probably the majority of people listening to this podcast. We're all fascinated by these animals and, you know, living in close proximity to them does not change that at all. You know, it's, it's like crack cocaine, you know, you want more of it, you know, the, the more you, yeah, so uh, I think the book, you know, it's kind of began, I'd say, 2012 when I was starting to interview, you know, bear hunting guides, be like, like I was kind of making my way as a writer at that point, too. I, I was starting to get columns and magazines and getting stuff regularly published. So I, it was like this excuse that I could go out and talk to people about really personal stuff that I normally can't like on a regular basis like i could walk up to a hunting guide and be like so tell me why do your why do your clients want to shoot brown bears and like you know you've been doing this for 20 years what does a brown bear mean to you or walk up to a bear viewing guide and be like why do these people want to pay so much money and travel so far to see this animal which on a normal basis i can't do that you know i can't just walk up to someone and like you know tell you know tell them show me your soul um so the book project in a way was my ability to be like, I, you know, our relationship with brown bears is so fascinating, you know, all just the psychological element, the historical element. Um, and that this book project was a way just to really explore that. Um, you know, once you kind of get the book deal, you're totally, you're, you're on. So it's just, it's game on after that, you know, so you can kind of, I, you know, for years was just like writing pieces that never got published you know, getting interviews. And then once I signed the contract, it was like, okay, it's, you know, it's, it's game on. And, uh, and then it's, you know, really has to, really has to happen after that. So. And I think as, as photographers, we hear a lot about the people that are, you know, that have been involved with brown bear viewing, brown bear guiding, or people that have gone, you know, made several trips up to photograph brown bears but there's got to be people that you've had the opportunity to visit with just, you know, natives or, or people that have grown up in Alaska that have a lot more intimate experiences with, with these bears than, you know, than any photographer could ever hope for. Um, without giving too much away, maybe a little teaser, who are some of the, some of your most favorite people that you talk to? Oh man. I mean, it's so varied and you know the 
I, that would be a hard one to talk to because, you know, Brahmer is it's not an easy subject for a lot of people to talk about, you know, talking with, you know, uh, people who've been mauled, you know, a lot of people don't like to even use the word mauled anymore. You know, people who have been attacked and survived and, um, yeah, there, there was a couple of brown bear hunting guides who I really appreciated talking to and, you know, just you're laying more on the line too when you're, you know, you're a hunting guide and you're willing to share your stories and, and where I'm at too, like in Southeast Alaska, you know, my favorite place is Almerty Island and uh, that whole Island would be clear cut logged and not what it is today. If it wasn't for a couple hunting guides, Carl Lane and Ralph Young specifically who fought tooth and nail to keep it from being clear cut and keep it, you know, at, you know, for a while it was the, the forest services like plan to clear cut and eradicate, like literally eradicate the brown bears on Almerty Island. And, you know, the native name, the Clinket name, it's Kusnawu, which means Fortress of the Bear. And that was mm-hmm. the plank, you know, in the 30s and whatnot. And it was these bear hunting guides and other people too, but they kind of led the charge to keep this this island from being massacred. And, you know, and just, and the book examines that and it just examines kind of just honestly how we're we've kind of in certain respects made the transition into people wanting to take a photo instead too um which you know like i said when i got offered a job doing bear viewing guiding in 2011 that stuff existed before Mm -hmm. i just hadn't heard of it and now it's you know i just see it everywhere and partly it's because i'm you know part of the industry but partly it's just it's this huge popular thing to do now so yeah yeah, you know, I first of all, I just want to thank you for giving us a, the ability to have a little bit of a sneak peek at it. I kind of feel uh, <laughs> lucky to have had a little chance to take a peek at it. Um, and it's interesting, you even get into a little bit in there about your personal struggle with the relationship with the bear, right? And I, I was able to read that chapter, and I was just, like, glued to it, enthralled with the – because I can relate, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people, as they read this, will, will you know, be able to relate in a lot of ways, and uh, it's – yeah, it's. I can't wait to read the whole thing. I'm. I'm excited to check it out. And it even mentioned in one of the chapters in chapter four, it talks about the that which is titled "The Man Who Killed Bears." It's. Uh, it gets into the, you know the history of the uh, the bear in the southern or in the in the uh, fifty contiguous states, right? The uh, the lower U.S. Sorry, and not in Alaska. And I think the last bear that was uh, documented was Old Ephraim. Is that correct? Well, that that was in Utah. Uh, that yeah. Was, oh, I'm sorry, in Utah. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think you guys, uh, Colorado, um, you know, had what was that? That bear was like early '80s. Was the last brown bear there, and then you know Idaho and Montana and Wyoming. Yeah. Wyoming, yeah. yeah, but um, yeah, just it's really an impressive story. Um, and I and it's funny because I've actually been to that site. I live in Utah. Oh, okay. So I've actually been able to go to the site, and there's actually a marker and a, you know, a little memorial and that for Oldie from there. But um, so it's kind of a big deal here in Utah. But Maybe that's a question for you. Why did we used to call Brownbears Old Ephraim? I have no, I have no idea. Yeah, I was reading that in the book, and when yeah. when I saw you kind of mention that a little bit, I was like, yeah, yeah, I don't know, I don't know why, but that's just what everybody knows them by that, you know. Mm-hmm. But yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting story, and then the whole story of how the hunter actually, you know, was able to kill it. it took him nine years, I think, yeah, to hunt him down and to eradicate him, but then, then regretted it. Yeah, yeah, that's the big that, and that's a common theme which I really enjoyed about reading yeah. some of the other stuff. Yeah, as the a lot of the hunters who hunted brown bears or you know ended up regretting. You know, you talked about Theodore Roosevelt and some other folks in there too that had similar experiences, but. Yeah, you, you do find that with a lot of folks. I I have noticed that have killed brown bears is they regret it. And honestly, a lot of the guides, they probably won't be listening to this. But you know, they don't. The lot there were some guides who were in, that I didn't put in the book that said some stuff that's just like, man, that's not printable. Um, yeah. <laughs> but most of the you know I have a number of friends who are bear hunting guides, and you know, most of them I think you know they're already they don't like killing bears. I mean, they like the hunt and they like that stuff and they like getting paid. But, you know, I think it's very common uh, with a lot of these guides that especially once you start getting a little older that you just, you know, it, yeah, it's, it's not, you, they don't want to do it, you know. Yeah. So. 
Yeah. Well, and it's it's the and the complication gets into the whole hunter conservationist relationship, and you know the fact that I don't know all the the facts you would know better than me, but I think there's actually more bears now than there was years ago. Um, in, and in Alaska, yeah. In Alaska, and that's due in large part to you know hunting and the value that they bring in some in some of those ways, and obviously the photography and videography side is helping that now. But yeah, you know, and that's something that's just really easy to forget, and I feel like a lot of people, including some of my colleagues in the bear viewing industry, sometimes forget. You know, I've got a friend who's probably close to seventy, and he was like, he's bear viewing a bear hunting guide, and. uh and he was just like, you know, when I started hunting bears, I was pushing for protections for them. And I was treated like I was a terrible person in Alaska. Yeah. Because, you know, they're all varmints. They all need to die from all these old timers. Yeah. Said, and now, you know, and then it's gone the, the other way. Now I'm treated like a a terrible person because <laughs> I'm a guiding hunt. So it's just, it's interesting, you know. Yeah. Yeah, it's What's complicated. The- that's the, that's the, uh, only way to really say it right is they're just complicated so that's you know one of the big battles in wyoming was that they started this hunt uh a year ago or tried to what most people don't know is going to be one of the most controlled hunts that the game and fish department's ever done the idea was to take some of these bears that the department was going to have to take anyway management wise because they were causing damage they were depredating um so most of those bears that that were going to be taken were taken anyway and in you know kind of in a wasteful way and i think one of the biggest issues people have with with bear hunting is it's kind of considered a, a trophy hunt not you know a meat or a subsistence hunt and so that's one of the biggest issues. But I can tell you, after photographing a lot of bears now, you know, I couldn't say this five years ago, but I've spent a lot of time with bears. There are some very humanistic characteristics of bears. And, and even, you know, to go so far as to say the emotion of raising cubs, and you can you can definitely see that. So I can see why or how some of these guys that, that grew up that way would become conflicted in the way that they viewed bears because they, you know, there is something almost spiritual about spending time with bears. And I'm, I'm sure you're going to, you're going to be able to relay some of that to people. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I mean, the, and I, I mean, I, I guess I don't feel bad saying this, but like it brown bears more than the other bear species for me, it's just, there's not there's no other animal like them you know the ability to reason mm-hmm. is i mean a, you can reason with a brown bear like you can communicate better with a brown bear than most people has been my experience and you know and just like every almost every like you know this whole demon monster mythology that has been passed on through the ages starting with you know Meriwether Lewis it's just like it's just us being dicks. Or sorry, I probably shouldn't say it. it's just us have you know our egos. This is wild and exposed. You can. It's all right. I, I can curse. All right. You know, <laughs> you know. So it's just like you know this whole myth of masculinity and all that. Where it's like it's still it's still huge today. You know, the hunting industry is huge, and I'm not gonna bash anything. And you know, like we've already we've just mentioned how hunters have done a lot for conservation. Um, I'm a lifelong hunter. You know, I grew up eating sick of blacktail deer and eating salmon. That was dinner last night. It was breakfast and lunch this morning and salmon's for dinner tonight. Um, and, you know, from having spent tons of time with brown bears, the idea of killing one is just, to me, is just, it's not too far from killing a person. Mm-hmm. And, part, and part of that's for me, it's just because I've spent so much time with them. That said, I have met some bears that I, I would like, man, I, I kind of want to kill you because you're, you're so, you know, that's like, it's the perfect brown bear. It's the, the big, mean male brown bear that's just wants to kill you. And, you know, you don't encounter that much, especially, you know, pe- areas where you, you know, these aren't in the areas where people go to photograph, you know, but, you, you know, occasionally in my life, I've encountered a handful of bears that was like, these things are, you know, just scary and. You know, you, you let your mind go, and people would disagree with me, but it's just like, I wonder how many bears, cubs, this bear's killed, and all that stuff. And that's when all of a sudden you're like, when your life is threatened, then you're thinking, well, maybe, 
yeah. maybe I can shoot you. Yeah. Not for, you know, in the few times I've been in that situation, I didn't pull the trigger and we both walked away okay. Um, but, you know, the, the, the act, the sports hunt of a, of a brown bear, it's one-sided, right. I think is what, and that's, you know, I have no problem with hunting, but where it gets weird for me is this idea of masculinity or whatever you want to call it, human superiority over species, or somehow this makes you tough or strong. And, you know, it's, it's not, it's one siding. You're taking it from this animal. This animal is not fighting you. It doesn't want anything to do with you. It's terrified of you. It wants to be left alone. That's all it wants is just for you to leave it alone. But you're kind of like a mosquito basically. And you know, if you're not, if you're not doing it for food, in my opinion, Mm -hmm. Yeah, I share a very similar opinion. So what you said you had a couple other book projects, first of all. Let's get into those a little bit. What were your other projects like? Well, I start my the first book project that I had for a while was it was pretty similar to this bear book, but it was more of kind of a history of southeast Alaska, uh interwoven with just kind of encounters with wildlife and interviews with people and i i pitched that to a lot of different publishers and they're all like dude no one wants to read this this is terrible <laughs> i'll read it they're right now <laughs> what's that i said i'd read it right now yeah, yeah i would too <laughs> how, how i could publish it is the difference and so i i basically was totally rejected um and as kind of a joke i wrote a piece about kind of this iconic spooky story of southeast alaska um, I can't really, it's, it's a long tangent that I'm not going to go into, but I got, uh, this Clinkett guy and it was, it's, you know, it's kind of the Clinkett boogeyman that I was writing about. And he was like, you need to write a book about this. And I was like, uh, but anyhow, I ended up writing a, my first book was, um, basically a paranormal and unsolved mysteries book on the last 300 years of Southeast Alaska. So it kind of tells the history of Southeast Alaska, uh, which I'm very partial to because it's my home, but Mm -hmm. through unsolved mystery and mysteries and paranormal events. And so that was because that guy was like, you need to do it. And I sent it out to two publishers and both of them wanted it. So, and that book, you know, took me four or five months to write where this book took, the bear book took me years, you know? Yeah. Well, I love paranormal stuff and, you know that that what's the name of that book that's called haunted inside passage i'm just making a note <laughs> yeah i mean <laughs> jason and i are going to yellowstone i'm sure he'll have that sitting on his i i'm just telling sitting you I, on I, the bedside I, table i feel, I feel lucky <laughs> to have i honestly feel lucky to have cheated a little and been able to read some of this and i really like your your um, writing style and i'm yeah. excited to check these out so so and then you said you had the second book another book too or is yeah, that the first one that didn't get published? No, the second book was uh, I actually I, I got my start as uh, as as a writer writing hunting and fishing stories, and that was just a collection of hunting and fishing stories. Gotcha. So, gotcha. Which is different Very in Alaska. I mean, there's hunting a and fishing? yeah because it oh, it is a survival thing up there. I mean, everything's survival up there. It has yeah. the op- potential to be. I mean, I live in I live I live in a city of thirty thousand people, you know. So it's like we have the grocery store, but you know, uh, I I mean, I know the word privilege. A lot of people hate it, but I, for me, being able to eat wild is a privilege that I I value deeply, and you know that's why mm-hmm. one of the reasons why I take conservation so seriously and and everything else. Um, but yeah, I mean, similar to that first book, I couldn't get anything published in a magazine any stories and then my dad was like well you know you've been hunting and fishing since you were a little kid that's and it's like just start writing hunting and fishing stories and uh, i was like who who wants to read hunting and fishing stories you know that's how naive i was i just didn't get it mm-hmm. yeah and that's how i got my start writing you know is just writing hunting and fishing stories and yeah so there's a lot of people even folks that don't can relate to the struggle can relate to the the endurance that it takes to to get out there and and complete a task like that and to live off the land they might not do it themselves because they've got you know the grocery store right next door but that just means you're paying somebody else to do your hunting and fishing for you 
in a yeah. you know in a roundabout way uh collecting your groceries but i think that you know the struggle to survive the struggle to replenish even is uh is something that everybody can relate to and if you bring that full circle i think you know we had some uh european listeners and that, that got upset with us because we had some people on that talked about growing up hunting and fishing and i think the biggest thing or the thing that people don't people from europe in particular don't understand is that in the u.s the wildlife belongs to the people it's not just royalty it's not just you know you don't just have to be a land baron to to own the wildlife the wildlife belongs to the people and i think that if you look at the north american model of conservation that's why we have so much more wildlife than than they do in in most other countries because it's not privatized belongs to the people and the people take care of it and i think that's the that's the tough part for people to reconcile is the fact that it can actually be a good thing yeah no i i fully appreciate how hard hunting is for a lot of people and you know how a lot of people maybe even listening right now you know i i love animals a lot and you know it's, it's i don't know if you can, we can call it a paradox but no, until it I, is for sure you know until Absolutely. i stop eating meat i i am lucky enough to be in a situation that i can not buy farm meat i can just get it from the woods and the ocean and and yeah I, I feel super lucky to be able to be in that situation and you know i i don't eat store meat and not that there's anything wrong with it but that's just just been really lucky to have that be part of my life in, you know in alaska yeah. well and to lead you to to be able to communicate those experiences with other people and then i you know the bear book is intriguing because it it kind of comes full circle right you you're coming from several different angles um with those stories and and being able to communicate people's experience but it comes full circle in showing people the respect that is actually gained for wildlife species uh, the, mm-hmm. the brown bear in particular and i i do think especially in alaska there's definitely something spiritual about the brown bear yeah i agree with you you know and you know i even more controversial you know i feel the same way about wolves you know if anyone who's i don't know if you guys have been lucky enough to like spend time like not just that fleeting glimpse of a wolf but actually like spend time and that's you know you know there's like in alaska they're they're, they're called a big game species but they're not treated that way mm-hmm. you know there's no limit the season's huge and yeah and that's very controversial as i know it is you know down the lower 48 too but sure you know, most animals, I, yeah, I do, you know, you use the word spiritual a few times. I feel that connection. But with brown bears, it's it's something different. I don't know right. if it's just because they they are so smart and they, you know, obviously have the potential to kill you or hurt you. And, you know, 99.9% of the time they just let you be unless you really make a big mistake. Mm-hmm. And likewise for me, like, you know, sick of black-tailed deer, I feel like I have a very spiritual well, I guess I'll call it spiritual connection to them, just that they are my food. You know, that's my babies. That's their first food is deer heart. First solid food is deer heart. You know, that's the way we do it. And and uh, and that's, you know, so for me, it's like, you know, I've spent more than a year of my life hunting sick of black-tailed deer. Most of the time not getting anything, but it's just you're in the woods, you're spending all this time. And, you know, then you take this delicious meat home that's so good. And, and so, you know, it's just like I'm, I'm actually drooling talking about it and I've been eating it my whole life. Um, <laughs> so, you know, it's a different sort of spiritual thing, but it's like still very much something that, you know, one of one of the things I value most deeply in my life is having that relationship with the deer, which it's not the same as a brown bear, obviously, but it's just this something I feel so lucky to be able to, to do and know, you know, the deer that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think you hit on a few really interesting points there and it's that, it's that I'm trying to remember the word that you used um, in the book. It was an interesting word that you kept intimate. 
and um, you know that whole intimacy with the brown bears and that. But but you know if most hunters, true hunters, that kill their food, that kill their prey for food, um, or kill their kill the animals they're hunting for food, um, would would relate to that, right? It's a it is a very spiritual thing, um, and if that's your intention, then you know. Again, you're just taking that into your own hands. You're not relying upon somebody else to do that for you. And yeah. there is some there's some facts there about the fact that it is healthier than you know the antibiotic injected and um, you know hormone um, raised farm animals that a lot of us um, you know are getting when we go to the store. So you know it's a it's a pure leaner protein um, and it's healthy for your family. You know so you know unless you're a vegan. <laughs> You know, I you know I'm a hunter as well, and I feel very fortunate to be able to, you know, once in a while be able to put some of that kind of protein on my table. Um, but every time I've ever killed an animal, it's been it's been an internal struggle. You know, there is a sadness and there is a, an appreciation, you know, for what that animal's you know provided for me. And then I also get the enjoyment of spending a ton of time with them with my camera, yeah. which you know, but that that appreciation for those animals began through my hunting experiences. And it's just grown into this passion that I can't even explain now. That's just, that's all I want to do. I want to be out in the woods with critters, spending time with them. That's what I want to do. So I've known a number of other folks who started out hunters and now are, you know, they, they the camera just was more rewarding for them. And, mm -hmm. you know, yep. and I, think, I think that's great. And I think, yeah, I think that's great. Yep. Yeah. I'm it's one of those, theme. but it's because my, my son now provides all the meat that we need for the year so yeah i, I don't have any need so yeah. let's let's segue a little bit into how you got involved with the film crews i mean obviously you had experience with bears and that brought you into the the photographic guiding how did you come to be involved with the film crews almost exclusively now yeah i mean a uh, handful of years ago you know you, with in Alaska, I mean, it's not as bad now as like when Sarah Palin, which we, of course we all remember her. She had these tax break systems, so we had, which somehow allowed like the idea was to allow, you know, that she was hoping like big Hollywood film productions would come to Alaska, but instead these tax breaks just had these this flood of reality tele television shows. Mm -hmm. Um. So initially, you know, if you were a quote unquote guide or anyone, you know, I've get asked usually once or twice a year to, to be on the show. Like mountain men asked me like they want, were interested in me being on the show. And I'm like, dude, I live in a condo with a golden <laughs> retriever. Occasionally I have to put on my Crocs and take my own trash out. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that's, that's the my last living. Um, but you know, as someone who I was, you know, I was really into mountain climbing and that sort of stuff when I was younger and, and that kind of segued into uh, um, teaching climbing and ice climbing and mountaineering, so kayaking classes, and that kind of segued into other sort of guiding work. Um, and then, you know, the reality shows came, and they were, you know, at first doing some some guiding for them that was like whatever, you know, quote unquote wilderness travel guiding stuff for their silly productions. And then um, when I started doing the bear viewing stuff, at first, it was not, there wasn't, it didn't seem like there was this high demand in Southeast Alaska for a period of time for film crews. I had a, I had one offer, I think, in like 2012 or 2013 that I turned down because I had some prior commitment. And looking back on it, it was like a month guiding brown bear stuff and i was just like that was just biggest mistake in your life um but i had you know made some prior commitment but after that you know i, I would there'd be you know i actually guided a handful of times before anything like whatever you know the bigger productions um got involved just a reality show would be like we want brown bear footage and so i, I would go out and do that and then uh and then, you know, just more and more interest, I feel like, in wildlife films, the planet, the planet Earth stuff, and, you know, just it's expanding expanding. So uh, the demand in Southeast got to the point where it was like, you know, at first doing like one 10-day, two-week 
trip a year for a big production for mm-hmm. bears or wolves and then just kind of doing that every year for about three four years and then um last year I, I mean i was getting so many offers that i just was like well geez i just need to stick to that um so that was kind of the, that was the point where i was like man i really enjoy working with these films i spent so much time all over alaska and all these different places have a good handle on the wildlife you know while i was doing all these trips i was broke and you know had no career and questioning like purpose of life and at a certain point i was like 28 i remember and my family was like dude you're doing exactly what you need to be doing you have no money you know you have nowhere to live but you're doing exactly what you're right on track <laughs> you're just and so it's like oh, okay i am and after that it was just like everything kind of fell in in line so yeah last year before covid i had like five or six months of film crew stuff lined up mm-hmm. and then you know basically everything got canceled but i lucked out and had a couple couple months couple two shoots last year that we were able to do uh and then this next year it's just you know it's the same thing with just you know almost more demand than i can i can meet uh and I, i'm hoping it will stay this that way because I mean, you just get, you get to hang out with cool people with wild animals all the time and call it work. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just, yeah, it's great. So it doesn't get much better than that. No, it's, it's fantastic. Yeah. But there's, unless a, you probably, I'm sorry. Uh, I was just going to say, there's a lot of work to it. I mean, you've done a lot of the advanced work for people just by gaining that knowledge over the years. And that's, yeah. you know, that's what makes you so invaluable, but there's a lot of work getting all that equipment out there, getting it back, getting it set up. Where the you logistics get to get are honest. I mean, I've I've been doing like for me like wilderness expeditions have been what I've done for so much of my life until I became a dad, and now things have not. It's not really, you know, that, that life's kind of on pause, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had all these years planning, like I planned expeditions all the time. And so the, one of the hardest things with these film shoots is just the logistics of just, you know, you're talking to six different people, different ideas. So just kind of getting everything in line with the logistics is probably, you know, like tomorrow I don't have any phone calls. Mm-hmm. Like every day I usually have a couple phone calls. You know, I, I'm, I'm like, I am like calling up all sorts of people. One animal population I was supposed, we were supposed to be filming this spring. You know, they just, got, it's like, mortality rate was really high so now we got to try to figure out something else potentially so you know it's just like these film shoots like when you're out there it's great and there's still plenty of logistical stuff you got to keep everything running and you got to you know for brown bears it's the safety stuff um and you know the big thing too it's just like you have all the stuff that you have to do just like everyday equipment safety but it's also like you got to get the shot you know And that's and that a lot of times for me the hardest stuff is logistics. Like I spent, like I said, a ton of time getting these helping get these shoots lined up, and then, uh, you know, you you want to get the shot, and you know you, you've you've already gone over with the the producers about what could happen. And, you know, for me it's like the two things is one safety for person and animal. And then the second one is just respect of the animal. And then besides that, you know, those are the two things. And otherwise, I, you know, I'm, I'm willing to try to get whatever shot they want as long as we're doing it within reason of, you know, reasonable respect and all that yeah. stuff. So, and, so you, and people I'm sorry. wanting, you know, more and more people keep wanting, you know, just the, everyone wants to never before seeing yeah. shot, you know keep pushing the limits and yeah and there is so i mean that's the thing though is like in alaska like there is so much never before seen shots to to be had right you know i'm like i'm you get a producer that's willing to talk something beyond just the normal katmai or pack creek shoot and i'm like oh man this is let's do it and you know like let's go to the brooks like get a production to go to the brooks range you know it's just like you don't have that happen with these big networks most of the time and yeah. you could totally get i mean i've seen things up there that are just beyond you know it's incredible yeah. so 
well then you get you get to feel the pressure too with the you know because it's just as the photographer and videographers they've got to get the shot but you've got to put them in the spot to get the shot so you're feeling the same amount of pressure yeah i mean for me it's different because i feel like my whole thing is 100 percent honesty you know i you tell everyone it's like well next year the salmon run could totally fail and obviously you want to get the shot really bad but it's like we're working with wildlife you're just not always it's not always going to happen yeah. you know you get everything and more that you ever wanted or you know we've had years recently uh you know with, we've had some crazy heat stuff in southeast where it's just like the bears are all they're not on the streams or so, they're nocturnal yeah yeah so it's like you know so that obviously there is that pressure i definitely have a couple shoots this year that are gonna you know i really want to work out and if, if they don't I mean, it is kind of on me because I'm kind of the one that organized them. But, but again, it, it can do. Yeah, it is wildlife, you know. That's yeah, the, yeah. <laughs> as long as you have a camera operator that's willing to grind, you know, mm-hmm. that's that's the key thing. Is like, and you know, it is great. And I love it, and I, as you guys know, but a lot of the work consists of of sitting still for hours and hours and hours days and, all sorts and days and days. Yeah, days and days. And, you know, that's romantic to, in retrospect, but at times out there, you're like, you know. Everybody wants to be a wildlife photographer for those 15 seconds of fury where everything's just going crazy. And it's just like you get to see because they only use 50, 15 seconds of footage. Yeah. But they don't but see the a... two weeks that it took to get that 15 oh, seconds. Yeah. But I mean, I have wildlife encounters I can look back on that lasted less than a minute that i'll treasure till i die you know and that's the thing you know people see that and they feel that and it's just like well man if you were there you would probably be treasuring that for the rest of your life now some people won't be some people are just like whatever but you know other people it's just like to have you know 30 seconds eye to eye with a wolf is something that a lot of people that's going to be their most some of their most precious memories you know yeah yep yeah getting back to that spiritual aspect wow yeah my first first wolf experience still to this day is far and away the best and I could honestly count how many breaths that that experience lasted because every one of them you know was the every exhale you could see visually and I've got it on film you can count the breaths that that experience lasted and forever I think that that will probably be the best experience with a wolf that I've ever had. You know, yeah. inside of 50, 50 yards and just me and him looking eye to eye and he's breathing, exhaling, full belly. And then he just trotted off. And that was it. But that will be one that never leaves, I can tell you. I'm sorry. You mentioned Bjorn that they don't, you don't, you know, you don't see a lot of wolves. I mean, there's definitely wolves up there, but, and a lot of that's because they're a pretty secretive animal, right? They don't like to be, they don't like to be seen necessarily, but, uh, and it's a vast, vast, vast country. But so have you had one of those like really crazy cool experiences where you actually got to spend some time with a wolf pack or wolves or? Yeah, I mean, I guess I should say, too, and I'm old enough that I just don't give a shit anymore. I mean, the, the big reason why, I mean, wolves are so smart. And, uh, you know, a big reason why you don't have a lot of those close encounters. You know, look at Yellowstone. Those wolves, people have, you know, get to see them all the time. Sure. Um, but it's because they're constantly being shot and trapped and, sure. you know, in Alaska. Yeah, yeah. That's the reason why it's so frequently it's like. Yeah, you know, a, a pack that I've been monitoring just got whacked, so I'm a little bit pissed. And I got to have those, you know, just this last year I got to have. And I'm like, I'm not against trapping. I'm not going to go down that road, but it's just like when you have that experience with an animal face-to-face, you you know the individuals and have spent time with them and just, like, had that. Yeah. And it's just like, all right. You know, and that's wolves die. That's what wolves do. Wolves sure. are killing wolves all the time. They're killing each other all the time. You know, they're starving to death. They're getting poisoned by whatever. Like, wolves just die. That's, like, one of the lessons in life that I've had to accept is, like, don't put too much on a wolf because they're going to be dead next year anyways. I've had twice where I've been monitoring the packs pretty closely, different Mm -hmm. packs, and 
all of them did. Wow. But yeah, I've been lucky to to have experiences like that. Um, you know, where I mean, one of my first wolf, and I write about it in uh, Killer of Beasts, the chapter Killer of Beasts in the Shape in the Dark. My first wolf, and this was like, you know, I'm 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 raised in Alaska, so killing like if you don't kill, if you see a wolf and you don't kill it in most of Alaska, you're a son of a bitch. Yeah, yeah. You know, whereas like in Juneau, it's a little different. We're more liberal. But, you know, other places, like, if you kill a wolf, you're a terrible person. But so, you know, it's like growing up with that dichotomy. And my dad was very much like, you know, do not kill a wolf. Do not kill brown bears. He was a hunter, too. But it was just like, you know, he was kind of progressive, I guess, in that way. But a lot of the people I hung around was like, if you kill a wolf when you're a teenager, you're a badass. Basically. Yeah. You're the man. Yeah. Yeah. So my first wolf was I actually... uh I got turned around in the mountains in kind of like October, November. It was snowy and it was all foggy and I was wandering around. And this wolf just started following me and my dog. And the wolf was a pup. You know, it was, uh, it was, you know, it was born last May. So whatever, it was 50, 50 pounds, say 60 pounds, you know. And for whatever reason, it wasn't with its pack. I don't know why it wasn't with its pack, but, you know, not good because, you know, a lone wolf's a dead wolf, as a lot of wolf biologists would say, and especially a pup. And maybe it was just separated for whatever, but, you know, it's still a pup. Yeah. It just followed us around for, like, an hour. And, you know, as I was trying, you know, at first it was like, well, this is weird, and then get within 40 yards or whatever. And I I actually had a, I had a gun, and uh, I just, that whole dialogue in my head of, man, if I kill this wolf, a lot of guys down downtown are gonna be like oh dude good job you know you're the man <laughs> but then like it was my dad's voice and the other side of my head is like you're gonna kill this animal that's you know what was also was like this animal was like a puppy following you around and i think it might have wanted to eat my dog or maybe it was lonely that's the thing with wolves sometimes it's the same those yeah. desires are, are balanced you know it wants to eat your dog but it's also <laughs> lonely it's also interested in you and that's one of the reasons why i like wolves so much in nature is like it's not a cuddly thing it's yeah. Yeah, I just spent like an hour and you know, I even had the wolf in my crosshairs and was, you know, it was just like this weird teenage boy. What do I do? And you know, I didn't shoot it and I felt terrible that I even thought about shooting it, but it was still like you know, that's me looking at back on it now much more comfortable with myself, but at that point it was just like what's the right thing to do? Yeah. Mhm. And it was just yeah. Yeah, slowly. It wasn't like this big spectacular wolf or anything. It was like, man, this wolf is. It was eating grass. I don't know if it was sick or what it was doing, but. But yeah, since then I've had a lot. You know, I've been lucky. I've had a lot of pretty cool encounters with with wolves, and yeah. they're definitely one of those animals that I I really want to try to spend more time with. So. Yeah. Yeah, two souls wandering around in the mountains. He maybe he was lost too for a little bit, right? But. <laughs> I don't know what, you know, it was a pup, so I, you know, I've learned more and more about wolves through the years, and I don't know, you know, he shouldn't have been alone, so. Yeah. That's crazy. Neat stories. We're hoping to, we're hoping to have some wolf stories here in a couple of weeks. We're headed over to Yellowstone. Well. And yeah. uh, we're going to go into the interior, and we'll see. There's been a lot of sightings this year. Right. It's been pretty frequent. So, yeah. Hoping yeah, to believe have it or one. not, sorry, believe it or not, Bjorn, it's really not as common as you think to no, have those even close there. encounters with them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh, even yeah. in Yellowstone. Oh. Okay, but I mean, it happens for sure. Way yeah. probably way more often than it does with when they're you know the hunted populations. But yeah, it's I've I've been going to Yellowstone for pretty regularly for probably ten years, mm-hmm. and uh, I think I've had like two fairly close encounters that didn't last very long. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, I had, I, I, you have them. I've had a number of times. We'll come right to the tent. Mm-hmm. Wow. Uh, in you know, in really remote parts of Alaska, and you know, like once I camped next to a rendezvous site, or a, I think it was a rendezvous site. It could have been a den, but wolves came in the middle of the night. You could hear them. They're right outside. One t- took a shit right next to our, our tent. <laughs> like literally, like you know, you can just. Then other times, like once in the Brooks Range, I mean, I, I watched them come. It was too yearlings just came right within 10 yards of the tent and the the whatever breeding father breeding 
breeding mother was up on this knoll another 60 yards away and she was she or he the adult was really upset and <laughs> you know just was like you can't be doing this yeah <laughs> gates of the arctic where you know there's not as much uh you know theoretically there's not hunting and trapping pressure 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 on them, but you know there's there's a big swath of the chunk of chunk of uh, gates of the arctic where there, there is it well it's, it's in the metal it's it's a eskimo land in there and mm-hmm. all those get shot at whenever they're seen so gotcha huh. well, what's the next book project maybe <laughs> one wolves. maybe one on wolves yeah. i was gonna say that sounds like to me what yeah. there's a i, mean, I there's think that would stuff, sell crazy stuff going on in southeast alaska and wolves are just so controversial like writing this brown bear book was hard enough you know to try to be honest and do do everyone justice and that was hard enough for me but it's like you know, the wolf is, is much more controversial and there's still so many people that, you know, taking the side of the wolf in Alaska is kind of like, <laughs> you're putting, you're putting your neck out there. Sure. And, mm-hmm. you know, and I, I, yeah, I mean, you're basically a bunny lover if you're <laughs> gonna be, you know, so it's an interesting thing. I've actually been talking to some pretty prolific trappers these past few days and, and that's the thing too that you know it's just not it's so much more complicated than a lot of people like to it's not black and white you know a lot of these people mm-hmm. are trapped they're like hell yeah i'm gonna shoot one if it's legal but man they are fascinating animals you know and you know they don't want to wipe them out a lot of them most of them there's some that do obviously sure. but it's just you know i think telling that story in southeast alaska i don't know if it's another big tangent but the whole court case with the whether, you know, our wolves are a distinct subspecies or mm. not, and they need protection. That's going on. It's the third time it's been brought to court. and and uh, Now, would those be, you know, like the like the wolves in B.C., would they be considered coastal? So these, yeah, they're coastal. And the, what the word that they, the subspecies that they've been called in southeast Alaska, and they've just kind of, like, done this blanket thing. It, they call it Alexander Archipelago wolves. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, it's it's a really interesting story, and you know, there's people who feel very strongly on both sides of the debate, um, and it's it's just a really interesting story because we have some other things going on in Southeast Alaska, you know, the Tongass National Forest. As far as uh, we had the roadless rule protections on some of our last intact old growth watersheds, mm-hmm. and that just got lifted, and that means basically they can you know the idea is that they can go clear-cut log the most productive habitat of of much much of the remaining old growth forest that we have left in southeast alaska which unlike a lot of places like our old growth habitat is the most ecologically vital for all the species so you know cutting it down you basically have this desert and we're cold and it takes forever to grow back so it's like when you knock down the old growth here it's like it ain't coming back Right. Or, you know, it's 100 a, years before it's vital again. and yeah. I would think some of that may change, right? I am ho- I'm hoping that will change. And that's part of the what's going on with Alexander Archipelago Wolf. Because if you were to list that as threatened or endangered, then you got to protect these remaining, the remaining habitat. Which, in my opinion, like, that's we we this you know it, we're not even making money on these timber cells mm-hmm. it's like it affects my livelihood and everyone who lives here's livelihood you know it's not it's just like it benefits china and some rich people down south to mm-hmm. cut the remaining watershed you know there's it's all being sent to asia for like chopsticks and napkins so you know we're not making money off these timber cells the forest service like losing tons of money every year of our tax tax money is like just millions is being lost and we already got like 5,000 miles of roads in the Tongass National Forest we don't need any more of that mm-hmm. but uh yeah so it's just like you know the, the wolf thing is 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 tricky because if you say you protect that habitat but it's very likely you talk to any biologists you know they're they're not a distinct subspecies is what any biologist would, would tell you um yeah, they may be genetically isolated but not in not certain sections, distinct, yeah, you know, like Prince of Wales Island is the big one where 
they're they're not closed even there and the wolves that i you know i work with the most are you know they, they some will come down from canada they're not you know you read like the description of the alexander archipelago wolf and they're like it's much smaller it's 50 to 60 pounds and it's tan colored and a lot of the wolves in southeast alaska you know whatever they look like they're 100 pound wolves that look like any other wolf so mm-hmm. and some people will disagree with me and that's fine but that's been my experience so mm-hmm. and i a book kind of just about wolves in general and partly about that because it is just an interesting interesting issue in my opinion so. for sure jason do you have anything else no no i mean, i've really enjoyed this conversation uh yeah I've, i'm excited for to get a hold of these other books that you've written and and get reading them um and i'm looking forward to your <laughs> whatever your next project is uh yeah i'll be i'll be staying in touch and keeping track of what you come up with so all right thanks a lot guys appreciate it hey thank you make it to southeast alaska let me know for sure oh yeah you're you're on yeah you know, i really it's funny, want just, to get to the inside passage never been yeah. able to get there i've been lucky enough to come up there and do some fishing out of catch a can with my dad years ago some salmon fishing and uh you know and spend some time there on a cruise you know for whatever that's worth but um I, I, my plan is to get up there this year in the summer for uh some um some bear activity it was supposed to come last year and it got canceled and actually hoping to come up with mike um this summer at some point to to be able to do some just have some of those experiences with those bears and it's funny because there you know there's a million photos of bears out there the the photo's been taken but it's it's one of those things where it's like high on my list and I don't really care. I just want my photos. I want those experiences. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. There's there's a lot to be had, you know, in southeast Alaska. And the nice thing here is that you can still have space from people. And this American cruise season got canceled, it sounds like, so you're gonna have plenty of space this year. This yeah. year again? Yeah. Yeah, so it's a pretty big bummer for a lot of folks. But oh yeah. Two years in a row. That would be yeah. devastating. Yep. Yeah, and I heard it's because they won't let them into Canada, right? At all, so they can't uh, they can't run those cruises without that. So, yeah. But no, it's been a pleasure talking with you, Born. I'm you know I'm glad feel like I'm lucky to have met you, and it's been an interesting talk. So appreciate your time. Thanks a lot, guys. Yeah, hopefully we'll run into you one of these days out out and about. Sounds good. Yeah. <laughs> You've been listening to the Wild and Exposed podcast. If you haven't yet, please give us a rating and a review. And make sure you're subscribed so that you'll get every episode we produce as soon as we drop it. And as always, thanks for tuning in. We're gonna make it someday. Nothing's gonna get in our way. We will be the biggest band in town.